Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. I'm sitting by the banks of, I think the river, it's called the River Sure or something. I'm in Luxembourg. I'm in a, a place dominated by a mighty castle on a sort of, uh, a bit of igneous rock. There's a, a hairpin bend in this river through the wonderful Ardennes. It's a staggeringly beautiful place and the most exciting thing is I've never even heard it before. I stumbled on it by accident. I followed a brown sign off the highway. And that's what I love about history. There's a castle in a town on a river in a region of Luxembourg that I'd never even heard of. And now I'm here exploring, learning. It's wonderful. I'm not even here because medieval history. I'm here because I'm telling the story of the Battle of the Ardennes, the Battle of the Bulge. 75 years ago this month, Hitler launched his last great offensive. It was blunted by the tenacity of the American defenders and then the awesome counter-attacking potency of, of Patton, other American commanders, with a bit of help from the British in the north as well. You can watch that documentary when it comes out on History Hit TV. If you're listening to this podcast, please go to History Hit TV. It's the world's best digital history channel. We've got a film that went up this week on the Battle of Austerlitz for the anniversary. We've got the Battle of Bulge film coming up. We have got all sorts of exciting things going on in the new year. Can't wait. It's going to be so exciting, 2020. It's going to be great. So please go and use the code uh, POD6. Get exclusively six weeks for free if you listen to this podcast. You'll be very unhappy to learn the weather has been so bad since I've been out here in the Ardennes that I've been unable to take any more grotesquely narcissistic pictures for the calendar, the 2021 calendar. The 2020 calendar is selling off the shelves. Please go to the shop, uh, History Hit Shop. This podcast is uh, a wonderful conversation with historian Graham Fowler talking about myth, Truth, legends, and the age of sail, the great age of sail, mostly the 19th century, actually, most of the, high, the sort of high 19th century, when sailing around the world, trading, exploring, conquering, emigrating, was a fantastically dangerous thing to do compared to nowadays. And the tales that emerged of survival, of death, of disaster, of luck, are really like nothing else. So it's a great opportunity to talk to Graham. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Please do head over to History Hit TV and uh, buy that special person in your life an annual subscription. Enjoy. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Graham, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure, great. This is, I love these stories. I'm obsessed with them. Um, did, how, just talk to me, where did this genre of, how do we describe it, maritime memoirs? Yeah, they're maritime, um, I call them sort of nasty memoirs, really. They're nasty narratives. The nasty narrative. You could have easily said nasty narratives of the sea. Um, but where they came from was quite interesting. In Bermuda, where I grew up, they, there's a, a two old rusting hulks in a little cove there by the side of the main road. And we grew up and we watched it. You could see them every day you go by, blah, blah, blah. So um, about 2007, I'd finished the latest book that I'd done. And I was casting around for a project to do. And I thought of these ships. I'd, I think I was probably there at the time for a, you know visiting I've lived here for 30 years, 40 years. But then I thought, what are these ships? Where, you know, what were the lives of these ships? I was interested in the lives of ships and the lives of the seafarers who were connected with the ships in one way or another. So I decided the next project would be to find out what the ships were and 
as much as possible do the research on their lives. And to make a long story short, the way you do that is, first of all, you have to find out the names of the ships. You go to Lloyd's Register, you find out what year they were built from them. You can go and you can find in Lloyd's list for every year all the ports from to that they went to where they had a Lloyd's agent. This was 1869 for one of them and 1876 for the other. Both were British built ships in Sunderland. They weren't all, they weren't British owned at that time, they weren't British flagged. But in any case, to make it long story short, I went to the Guildhall, I spent three years going through all the microfilm um, data of all of the voyages of these ships, half a dozen, a dozen a year for 35 years. But I kept getting distracted by the casualty columns in Lloyd's List, where even today, but in those days, you'd have um, reports of ship's captains about terrific voyage around Cape Horn or in the Indian, in the Southern Ocean or something. And they'd have uh, reports of all sorts of casualties from groundings to dramatic um, catastrophes. And they just kept getting my attention. And I realized that within that era of second half of the 19th century of the deep sea sailing ships, there were tremendously dramatic stories, human interest stories, narrated, told, recounted by the people who were actually involved in those events um, and were um, impacted by them and so on. So to make a long story, that is actually where they, the interest came from, was the, the dramatic sea stories that were real life events. And were these stories being, where, where's your source for them? I mean, is it in the, perhaps the, the records of, of these archives or, or, or were people publishing books? Was there a lively memoir uh, industry? It was made in the newspapers. Um, when you get away from the Lloyd's List casualty columns, um, which I use to some to great extent, actually, um, then you go down different avenues and you find other sources. And what's been a huge boon now, most recent years, is the digitization of newspapers of the day, of which there were many. And their accounts of terrible voyages or um, in one of the um, books about cannibals in the South Pacific, especially the Australian and New Zealand papers and the Fiji papers, for example. And they'd give reports of traders or missionaries being attacked by cannibals in Solomon Islands, New Hebrides, Fiji Islands, etc. And, and there were such graphic accounts because in those days it was similar to today. You know, it was a very competitive newspaper industry, it was sort of the sensationalization of sea-related sea stories, ships uh, and mariners who were absolutely on the edge of the abyss. And these were ordinary people. They weren't heroes. They weren't uh, the Captain Cooks of the world, the Magellans. These were ordinary people who confronted extraordinary circumstances. And that's what makes it interesting. Tell me about some of your favourite incidents that you came across during your research. Um, there are several, but I think because of the nature of these 
books and the way I've structured them to be human accounts. It's sort of the humanization of extraordinary accounts told by people who were there at the time, firsthand, uh, involved in the instance or very close to it. Newspaper people, for example, reporters. But the greatest and the most affecting story, I think, was the voyage of Anne Saunders in 1825, when she was coming back to Canada. I think it was from Liverpool to Canada or Liverpool. Anyway, they went through very bad weather. Um, it took ages. They were going west about, so boom, 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 knocked about. They ran low on provisions. Everybody was starving. One by one, crew members died, people died. And as was what was called the custom of the sea in those days, they began seeing a source of nutrition from dead shipmates. And as one person died, they'd cut bits off where they'd quickly stick a knife into the jugular to get the fresh blood. Oh yeah, and it happened more than once. I must say, when I say the best thing about the story, is what I mean is the most affecting thing. Anne Saunders was a woman, young woman who was traveling with an elderly lady, friend. Um, but she'd made an acquaintance of one of the crew members, young guy, in Liverpool. And she, to such an extent that they had, uh, were going to be married. But he died. Same with Freers, I think. He died. And she says in the most pathetic, in the most heart-rending way, Lord God help me, I was the first one to put the knife in and drink his blood to keep me, keep us going, keep me going. And Lord forgive me. She was full of all the Lord forgive me and that sort of thing. But they weren't shy about uh, cutting bits of flesh and drinking the blood. And what was the tone? First of all, can we trust the newspapers? Well, yes and no. You can trust certain things. But, for example, there was a case in um, one of the books that dedicated a lot of room to it because it was interesting. Um, it's called, the title of it is Carnival of, A Carnival of Murder on the High Seas. And it was the case of the Herbert Fuller in 1896 from, on a voyage from Boston to... Argentina, Rosario, as it happened. And a couple of days out, somebody in the crew killed the captain, his wife, and the second mate. So they, they had three bodies decomposing on the deck, and after four or five days, they became rather noisome. So they stuck them in the dinghy, towed them behind the ship, and went to Halifax. And when they reached Halifax, the Alleged perpetrators were all put uh, under arrest or scrutiny, under arrest actually, but no one knew who did it. And there was uh, long sheets of, of newsprint about this case, the Herbert Fuller axe murders at sea. And the number of times I had to check against the names of the people involved, um, their occupations, you always had to check because things were... Um, inaccurate in many different ways. So you have to cross-check. It's something that, if you take it just for granted that um, they are as written, uh, it's a mug's game in those days. And in fact, from many sources of those days, public records, 
you really have to check against certain things and you have to have a good feeling about when it's likely to have been wrong or needs checking. Give me some of the other ones that you've found. Well, that was a good one. But the one about uh, Anne Saunders was not a, a sort of cannibalism at sea story. It ended up being like that, but it wasn't that. But there is a section on in Cannibals and Carnage uh, book, which is volume one, about the Mignonette case. Mignonette was a famous landmark case of a yacht that was taken from England, being taken from England and sailed to Australia in 1884 by three men and a boy, a youngish boy, 19 years old or so. The yacht was sunk by bad weather in the South Atlantic, um, and they all took to the dinghy. They had four people in the dinghy, adrift, cast away, and the boy's name was Robert Parker, captain was Dudley, and the others I can't remember. After about 17 days, it was decided that someone has to go in order to save the others. So the captain, Dudley, said, Parker, it's time. What, me, sir? Yeah. Okay. Sticks the knife in him and, and he's gone. And it was, it was two days later, I think, that a ship came by, the Montezuma, picked them up, and the boy had since been mostly eaten. They'd taken back to Falmouth, and they'd given the whole, we wouldn't call them confessions, but they'd, they'd certainly narrated the whole sequence of events because they didn't think they'd done anything wrong. Because in those days, and this was 1884, and this is not common, but it was a regular occurrence that this custom of the sea, where you could eat the flesh of other shipmates who had died um, to save your own lives, was taken as, as I say, the custom of the sea. And it was prosecuted in the English law courts and everything, Judge Huddleston, um, very complex, very convoluted case. And eventually, it, it, the landmark decision was that you can't um, use necessity as a justification for murder, i.e. the necessity for survival. And that was in English law. But what was interesting is what, what they called it, the custom of the sea. A year at sea, you're in a very primitive, savage environment. English legal niceties, or any other niceties for that matter, are really irrelevant when you're that far from going over the edge, you know, oblivion. But the custom, what the, the, the public in that case were very sympathetic. They understood that this had happened and they knew about it, but it was custom. It was a customary thing, but it wasn't law. It wasn't legal justification in this case. But it reminded me of things that I'd seen in the past in the West Indies. I, went, I was in Turks and Caicos for a while doing some book projects there. And around that time, this was 2012 or something like that, there was a commission of inquiry about allegations of corruption by Michael Mizek, the Premier, and his government. And when he came to give evidence, and all of his other cohorts came to give evidence, they said, well, this is the way we do it in the islands. This is, it's a custom. It's just a custom. 
And I thought, custom ain't law. You know, you can justify it's just because this is the way we do it. That ain't, doesn't make it law. And it doesn't apply, more importantly, if everybody just said, well, that's the way we do it. You know, we, we kill our nephews if they don't uh, do what we want or something like that. And did they go to prison or were transported? Or? They went to prison for about six months. There's a huge sympathy for them in the public arena. But, um, yeah, they were convicted. It was, you know, they were, they were guilty. But they were given, even the judge said, if you plead leniency to the, um, to the crown, I'm sure it would be granted. And it was. And that happened, that was one case. But there were um, quite a few other cases. I'm astonished how recently this is all happening. I thought by the late 19th century, the world, the first era of globalization, they were all ticking along nicely. And, and <laughs> these are the stories I'd associate more with the 16th and perhaps the mm. 17th centuries. What was more interesting, because there have been cases of cannibalism at sea since then, and in the 20th century, I haven't bothered with that because one of the reasons I stuck to accounts of incidences before roughly 1910, 1920, is that you come up against uh, problems of copyright. Because these are transcriptions of accounts, narratives written in the day, which sometimes I have to correct and make addenda to. But... Um, you can't transcribe something written in 1940, say, without coming perilously close to copyright infringement. So, but before I asked the New York Times this, and because I had a dozen extracts from them in the 18 some odd 1890s or so, and they said anything before 18, uh, 1925 we consider in the public domain. So, if it was good enough for the New York Times, as far as I'm concern it was a good enough benchmark for me so mainly I kept it between or up to about 1910 just before the first world war then give me another story you say you didn't know these things happened in um, the 19th century missionaries and trading schooners in the second half of the 19th century in the western pacific from the Fiji islands to the uh, eastern coast of Australia, or the colonies, as they were called then, was an area of intense conflict and regular conflict with the local uh, islanders. Because the islanders, from the missionaries' point of view, were absolutely prime hunting ground for conversion to Christianity, and Methodism in particular. But what was also happening was that the sugar plantations in Queensland, the cotton plantations in um, Fiji and the surrounding nearby islands needed laborers. So you'd get these trading uh, vessels, mainly schooners, going out of Australia on the northeast coast, Queensland coast, and from Fiji, and they would go recruiting Pacific Islanders for labor on the plantations. Uh, quite often, they were called recruiting vessels, but quite really they were um, kidnapping. And it was called blackbirding. And they would go to an island, they'd entice the islanders out in a canoe in order to trade with uh, pearls, bechdemir, that sort of thing, curios. And then the, the crew and the, the trading, uh, the recruitment vessel would come out with anchors or lines 
with heavy pig iron on them, drop them in the canoes, upset the canoes, and they'd sort of rake up the the uh, islanders from the water and put them in the hold and take them to um, to be used as laborers. And this was a very could be a, a very bloody sort of activity because uh, Solomon Islanders, for example, or especially, they will fight back from the holes. But there is one incident, well, probably more than this, where in order to quell the riot, they would riot from below in the holes. It was basically a slave ship. Um, they just shot indiscriminately into the hold. And something like, I think, 80 of the islanders were killed. But not, the thing is, not all of them were killed, but they were thrown over anyway. I think this was a hopeful murder, uh, massacre. The ship was called the Hopeful. It was towards the end of the, that period, 1890s, I think it was. But um, they were held account for that atrocity. And there was a trial and, and so on. But the public outcry about those incidents, when they get reported in the press extensively, then the public is aware of it. They get it and they were really outraged by it. It's not as if they supported it or anything. So it led to the legislation of outlaw, outlawing recruitment of Pacific Island labor for use on the plantation. It was basically, um, by the beginning of the 20th century, there was none of that going on. But um, there was a lot of confrontation between white colonial traders and missionaries and the indigenous islanders of the central and southern and uh, western Pacific. It sounds like being on these vessels was unimaginably tough right up till the, well, the, the 20th century. And beyond, uh, beyond in the sense that past the turn of the 20th century, yes. But um, by the beginning of the 20th century, really steamships had taken over. The hardest times um, had basically been legislated out of existence. In 1895, the American Seamen's Union on the Pacific coast of the U.S. Um, established something that was called the Red Record. And it's not terribly well known these days, but I sort of dug it up and got a copy of it from San Francisco, a source there. And it's a record of all of the atrocities perpetrated on American flagged ships. And some of these atrocities are... Uh, are hard to believe. There was a, something that sticks in my mind where they took, for no really good reason, it wasn't a matter of discipline, a seaman was taken, put in a barrel, nails driven into the barrel, and he was rolled around on the decks. The, the nails were driven through the barrel. He was coopered in it. That was his punishment for God knows what, you know, maybe spitting over the side or something, who knows. I, I, it probably does say, but uh, anyway, it gave a uh, record of some 60 or so, 60 or 80 instances, and it's called the Red Record. And certain shipping lines had a reputation um, for being what were called hot hell ships, basically. And the atrocities were mainly on American ships, not exclusively, but I mean, this was an American-oriented um, record. But some of those things were, some of the actual brutality, acts of brutality uh, inflicted on crew by vicious 
almost psychopathic officers, mainly the first mates, sometimes the captains, masters of the ships. But this went up. That was in, if you can think, that's 1895. So it was going up until then. But what happens is that the error of the steamship is superseding the error of the deep sea um, sailing ship by then, by long chalk. So they were dying out anyway. And uh, the other one, why did seamen not learn to swim? Well, I don't know if it was conscious or not, but a lot of seamen in those days were really the dregs of humanity. They uh, swept them out of the gutters to work on ships. Crimping was a common practice. You know, they'd get them drunk, and suddenly they'd find themselves the next day uh, halfway across the Atlantic or wherever they were, where they didn't, certainly didn't expect to be. So they weren't exactly... Um, they didn't take swimming lessons down at the local pool, let's say. But the, the other reason that they elected not to, in most cases, would be that if you were cast off from the top of a yardarm into a very, very angry sea somewhere, anywhere it could be, but let's say for the sake of interest, off Cape Horn or in the Southern Ocean, the ship is not going to turn around for you because the ship can't turn around in that kind of condition. And certainly, even if it could, it would be miles away by then. Uh, a square-rigged sailing ship doesn't turn around like a 14-foot laser dinghy. That's miles. And it would be dangerous. And the ship captain would never do it because it would imperil the ship and the rest of the lives and probably, more important, the cargo. So you just... Don't. Unless it's a moderate sea, you launch a lifeboat, and in those cases, you might find them. But basically, if you got tossed into the sea, you just wanted a quick descent, and that was it. You don't want to be swimming around, waving goodbye to, uh, you know, your shipmates over the horizon, who you know are never going to come back for you, and the chances of you being picked up again are virtually zero. So, you know, they didn't have a great life anyway. Where they came from, a lot of these men, it was not really much of a life to be losing anyway. That's my opinion. Graham, what a story. Uh, what's the, the book called? The first volume of Thrilling Tales of the Sea is Cannibals and Carnage. The second volume is of Misery, Mutiny and Menace. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.